I have a sermon title for you this morning. It's Jesus the Righteous, Rejected and Reviled. Jesus the Righteous, Rejected and Reviled. In this life we live, there are often tipping points, decisions of momentous importance, watershed moments that alter life trajectories. History is full of moments and days like this. As a native Texan, I was taught to remember the Alamo. A proud memory. (laughs) A proud memory of brave resistance and courage in the face of seemingly assured defeat. Or you might think of a convicted felon who will never forget the sound of the judge's declaration. Guilty. Life trajectory forever altered. And this morning, we get the privilege of entering into one of those moments. We will see King Jesus rejected by his people. And so whether you come this morning sitting in one of those blue chairs, loving Jesus, indifferent to Jesus, hostile to Jesus, I just invite you to enter in this baffling scene from history whether this is the first time you've heard of Jesus or the thousandth. Consider with me Jesus the righteous, rejected and reviled. Our passage will break down into two scenes. First, he will be rejected and condemned to be crucified. Then he will be reviled and humiliated. My plan this morning is to walk us through these two scenes. I wanna draw your eyes to key details to help you feel the agony the injustice, and the mind-boggling dissonance of what we get the privilege to see. Then I want to zoom out and ask, why? Why is this happening? Why is Jesus enduring these things? Then I want to consider the purpose of Jesus' suffering in your life. What should this produce and prepare you for as you seek to follow Christ? So let's dive in. Scene one. Jesus the righteous, rejected by his own. Jesus is standing before the governor, Pontius Pilate. He literally stands before the judgment seat, which would have been a raised platform with Pontius Pilate looking down upon Jesus of Nazareth. Thus far, Jesus has been asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus has responded, you have said so. He was then falsely accused by the chief priests and elders, to which Jesus responded with silence. He felt no need to dignify their slander with a response. All this is to Pilate's amazement. The action proceeds, and in verse 15, we learn that it was Pilate's custom that every year at the Feast of Passover, he would release for the Jews a prisoner as a way of endearing himself to the people. It's good old-fashioned politics. 2,000 years has gone by. I don't think anything has changed. People are still seeking to please men with whatever power they have. We then learn in verse 16 that sitting in prison is a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Mark in his gospel adds a detail. He tells us the reason for Barabbas' notoriety. He was a known murderer and an insurrectionist. 
This is a man with Roman blood literally on his hands. He was a legitimate enemy of the state. And so Pilate gives them two options. Barabbas, a bona fide murderer, or Jesus, who was called Christ, the so-called king of the Jews. Now to modernize in a bit, it'd be like asking, do you want Osama bin Laden or Jesus? The choice should be obvious. And Pilate does that on purpose, to try and get Jesus released as he's beginning to see that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. And that's one of the crucial insights we need to see this morning. As the story unfolds, Matthew will make sure that we see Jesus as righteous, innocent, unstained by any sin. And he does this in verses 18 through 19 by giving us some extra information. Two pieces of it. Look at verse 18 with me. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate knows the reason why Jesus is standing before him. It's because the Jewish leadership envied him. I wonder if you've ever considered what the reason is for Jesus' crucifixion, humanly speaking. Matthew tells us it's envy. This is a sin that we just see in the, in the lists, the sin lists in the Bible. And too often we treat it like that. Judas betrayed Jesus for personal gain. You remember what he asked? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? He used Jesus as a means to his own end and now we see the leaders of Israel oppose Jesus and want to destroy him because they are envious of him. Jesus being opposed is nothing new, but the motive being provided is new. And so we should ask, what is envy? I think envy is the wanting of something that you don't have with bitterness and resentment attached. Envy is the wanting of something that you don't have with bitterness and resentment attached. It's often said that comparison is the thief of joy. But as my favorite theologian, my wife, reminds me, that's mistaking comparison for envy. There's nothing wrong with comparison. Comparison is noticing that I have apples and you have oranges. Comparison is just a tool to understand the world while envy is a sin. So I wonder, when was the last time you felt this? Maybe it snuck up in your heart when you scrolled social media and that friend who you, you love is on a vacation you can't afford. Maybe your friend got engaged and you're bitter. You wish that were you. Or a friend shares he got a new job that he loves. He got a huge raise. And you're just sitting in the cubicle, barely paying the bills, bored. And for a split second or two, the love that you have for them is replaced with resentment. It can be easy in those moments to brush it off and move on like it's no big deal. But when we look at this text, when the Bible tells us that envy is the human cause for Jesus being delivered up to die, I think we should take a look at the envy in our hearts a little longer. Because this isn't just a Jewish leadership problem. 
This has plagued humanity since the dawn of time. You have, you don't have, someone else has, you envy and it consumes you from the inside out. Why did Cain kill Abel? Genesis 4. Cain saw that God regarded Abel with favor in his offering. He didn't regard himself or his offering. The scriptures tell us that sin was crouching at the door of Cain's heart, longing to consume him. So it was with the Jewish leadership and so it is with each of us. Friend, this morning, beware of envy and don't be deceived. It will fracture your friendships. It will wreck your marriage. Envy is straight from Satan. It's what will put the nails in Jesus' hands. And it's what will send you straight to hell. So what should you do with your envy? You should repent of it. Ask God to fill you with thankfulness at his kindness towards you. How he meets all of your needs and gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Put envy to death and seek to rejoice at others' blessings. And if a certain social media platform is regularly inflaming your heart to envy, you need to cut that out of your life. Don't play with envy, church. Trust the Lord's character, his provision. So that's the first piece of commentary Matthew provides. He tells us that the Jewish leadership delivered Jesus over because of their envy. The second piece he provides us is in verse 19. Read that with me. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So, so far we've seen Pilate amazed at Jesus' silence in the face of false accusations. We've been told, Jesus, Pilate knows that Jesus was handed over because of envy. And now he hears his wife's testimony that Jesus is that righteous man. She's been told this in a dream. Three ways this dream is important. First, it reminds us that Jesus is innocent. He is pure. He is above reproach. It doesn't matter the verdict. We know that Jesus is righteous. None of their accusations will stick. From beginning to end, Jesus was righteous and obedient to his Father. Second reason this dream is important. It reminds us that from beginning to end, God the Father is orchestrating history so that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Do you remember how this gospel started? Remember, God spoke to Joseph in a dream, telling him to stay with Mary. She had done no wrong. Then God warned the Magi in a dream not to return to Herod because he was going to try and destroy Jesus. Then God spoke to Joseph again in a dream and told him to flee to Egypt. Then after Herod's death, God spoke to Joseph again in a dream. He told him, now it's time to return to Israel so that you will live in Nazareth so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Don't you see God's hand once more? Now God speaks to Pilate's wife, to Pilate in a dream who attests to Jesus' righteousness so that as he journeys to Calvary, as he will soon walk to the cross, you and I would know he is righteous. 
And the third reason this dream is important is it provides a textual link. It brings to mind Jesus' own words he spoke against the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Jesus said there, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. We will turn to this passage again later, but for now it's providing a link, making us remember Jesus' own words. So, back to the action. Matthew has clued us into the envy driving the Jewish leaders. He shared with us the dream provided to Pilate's wife, reminding us of Jesus' righteousness, which makes what follows even more shocking. Read verses 20 through 25 with me. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. I think there's a little bit of irony that Pilate says to the Jewish leaders what the Jewish leaders said to Judas not too long ago. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, Judas said. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Now Pilate says the same thing. Because Jesus is rejected by his people. The tide has turned against Jesus. Whereas in the beginning of chapter 26, when the chief priests and elders sought to arrest him by stealth, because at that point, the crowd favored Jesus. Now even the crowds have turned against Jesus, who in a frenzy call out for Jesus to be crucified. Do you want innocent Jesus or a known murderer? Give us back the murderer and send the innocent man to a criminal's cross. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let him be crucified. Mob justice prevails. Although Pilate seems to think that Jesus does not deserve this sentence, he gives the people what they want. He's a politician through and through. In a symbolic act that would have been familiar to the people, he washes his hands to try and proclaim himself innocent of this man's blood. The symbolism pops up in the Psalms with the washing of hands serving as a visual display of perceived innocence. Because generally, we all know, when a death occurs, there's a responsible party. The one who murders is responsible for the death of the victim. Blood is on their hands. Pilate doesn't want to be responsible for Jesus' blood. 
So he washes his hands, passes it on to the crowd, who all too willingly take it on themselves and shout for his death. In a chilling moment, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. It was surely the shout heard all throughout heaven. Israel rejects their Messiah. The promised king has finally come and all the people, which Matthew notes to show us that it's not just the chief priests and elders who reject Jesus and want him dead. No, this is all the people. It's tragic. And it's simultaneously stunning and expected. It's stunning to us because Jesus is innocent. And yet they condemn him and reject him, send him to the cross. And yet it's expected because if we know our Bibles, and if we listened to Jesus' own predictions throughout this gospel, this was always coming for him. But I don't want you to take my word for it. So we're going to do some page flipping. I'm not Blake White, but we're going to get that bla- those pages flipping, okay? I want to show you how Israel's calling out for Jesus' righteous blood fulfills the scriptures and confirms Jesus' own words. So keep that in perspective. We're seeing how Jesus' suffering fulfills the Old Testament and shows Jesus to be a true prophet. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Just a couple pages over. Chapter 23, verses 29 through 36. These are Jesus' words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. See, Jesus was a man of the word. He knows his Bible. And he tells us that old covenant Israel has always killed the prophets and shed the blood of the righteous. They built the tombs of the prophets. And if we just rehearse some of our favorite Bible characters, we'll remember that this is true. We said earlier, Cain killed Abel. Remember what happened to Joseph? His brothers beat him, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery into Egypt. Moses was rejected by his fellow Israelites. He had to flee. Saul, King Saul, sought to kill David. The people of Israel threatened to kill the prophet Jeremiah because he also prophesied against the temple if they didn't repent. The priest Zechariah was stoned to death by King Joash, though he was righteous like his father. 
Jesus sums up all this history and more by saying that all the blood of the righteous shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, which is like a Christian saying from Genesis to Revelation because Genesis was the beginning of the Hebrew Bible and Second Chronicles was the end. All the blood shed will come upon this generation. This is terrifying. And it reminds us that God is a holy and just God. He might overlook sin for a little while, but evil will never go unpunished before our God. God answers the prayers of the righteous. The prayer of righteous Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24, for example, who as he was dying cried out, may the Lord see and avenge. Jesus assures us that all the righteous blood will be avenged and it will come upon this generation. These are serious and frightening words and we see them come true in our passage today as they call out for his blood to be on their heads. They will ask God themselves for responsibility. He will give them their desires. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. The parable of the tenants. Hear more of Jesus' words. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. This is the story of the Old Testament. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Sounds a little bit like envy, right? And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. In our scene, it says that they wanted to destroy Jesus. The same verb is used here to describe what the owner of the vineyard will do to the wicked tenants. What's translated, he will put those wretches to a miserable death, is the same verb. He will destroy them. That's a picture of God's justice. What they do to Jesus, he will do to them. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Once again, to drive the point home. God's justice will be served upon this generation because this generation is the one who will take God's son and kill him. It wasn't enough for them to persecute and kill God's servants, the prophets. Oh no, they had to kill the son. 
longing for his inheritance, consumed by envy. And what's the fruit of their envy? What's the outcome? They will fall on the cornerstone Jesus Christ and they will be crushed. They want to be held responsible for the blood of the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, God's own Son. God will grant them their desires, put them to a miserable death, and avenge all the righteous blood spilled at the hands of Old Covenant Israel. The chief priests and Pharisees rightly understood Jesus, that he was speaking about them. That's what it says in verse 46, when the, when 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them, but not only them. No, our scene tells us it's all the people. The kingdom will be taken from them and given to another people, a people who bear the fruits of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This people is called the church. It's open to anyone and everyone who will repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Both Jew and Gentile are welcome, but you have to believe in Jesus. He is what marks the community of the new covenant. We are a people who surround and gather ourselves because of Jesus Christ. God is recreating his people around his son. Flip back to chapter 27. The scene ends. We proceed. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus' end is determined. His fate has been sealed. He will suffer and die on a criminal's cross. The first part of crucifixion consisted of the preliminary flogging. What is referenced here as scourging. This would have been done with leather whips, often weighted with pieces of metal or bone to rip up the flesh, inflict severe pain and injury, and could itself prove fatal. Matthew gives us none of these details, but they would have been well known to his original hearers. And so as we move forward, when you picture Jesus, picture him bloody, beaten, skin torn open, and weak. And yet, Jesus knew all this was coming for him, and he predicted it. Do you remember his words in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19? He told his disciples, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Here in our first scene, we see Jesus delivered over. We see him flogged. We see him condemned to be crucified. In the next scene, we will see him mocked, perfectly fulfilling what Jesus predicted. And then in the coming weeks, we'll see him come out of the grave. So we've seen Jesus rejected by his own people. Now, let's see Jesus reviled. Read verses 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him. 
and led him away to crucify him. Jesus is stripped, robbed of basic decency. He stands for up to 600 men. Then the mockery begins. A royal robe is given to him. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. A flimsy reed is put into his hand. The mockery builds. They kneel before him and they sarcastically honor him. Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus is spat on like a piece of dirt. They take the reed and strike him on the head, having satisfied their pleasures. They strip him once more and put his clothes back on. All that is left now is Calvary. He will next go to the cross. Can you imagine enduring this kind of humiliation? Someone else's spit dripping down your cheek? Your clothes in a pile on the ground while you were exposed before 600 men? Laughed at? Beaten? Blood wetting your hair and dripping into your eyes? Now, can you imagine having the authority to call down 12 legions of angels to put it to an end? Can you imagine suffering for things you didn't even do? Jesus could have escaped this treatment, and yet he took it. He endured. The question you have to ask is why? Why is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enduring this kind of humiliation from men that he created by his own sovereign power? Why is he allowing himself to be subjected to such cruelty? Answer, because this is the way to Calvary. He's doing it for us and for our salvation. It's obvious, but don't you see? The Son of God had to die not only to die, but to endure beating, mocking, scourging, and ultimately to take the wrath of God for your sins on the cross. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you actually believe that Jesus had to die for your sins? What we're watching this morning is our salvation being accomplished. Atonement, the price for our sins is being paid. The righteous gives himself for the unrighteous. He has come to bear our sins in his body on the tree. He is becoming a curse for us that we might not be accursed. The founder of our salvation is being made perfect through suffering. Christ is dying for you at the right time while you're still a sinner so that Forgiveness in his name can wash you clean so that God alone will get all the glory and honor as we boast in Christ crucified. So Christian, this morning, glory in your Redeemer. He doesn't look glorious. He doesn't look strong. The Roman soldiers probably thought he was pitiful. Piece of trash in front of me. But when we see him, we see him willing to be humiliated. When we see his eyes in the scene, we can see his eyes full of love for you. 
So won't you look at Christ's love and let it wash over you this morning? See what depths of humiliation Jesus was willing to endure and suffer for you so you can walk out into your life with an unshakable confidence that Jesus loves you and that you stand forgiven. Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. So cling to him, church. And if you're here this morning and you are an enemy of God, you have no love for Jesus, you're still ruling your own life instead of submitting to God's rule, won't you see the love of Jesus Christ and come to him? He invites you to come to him. The havoc and evil running rampant in this world and in your life is all too clear. You need this Jesus. Won't you see the loving character of Christ Jesus? I mean, just ask yourself, would any of your friends die for you at your worst moment? Would anybody pay the full price for your sins that you're responsible for? Nobody will. But Jesus, Jesus, the king of the world, came and lived and died that you might have life and have it abundant. It doesn't matter what you've done. Christ died for your sins to reconcile you to God. His blood is sufficient. Think with me about the apostle Peter, who at this point in the story has rejected Jesus three times. But we see in Acts, after the resurrected Jesus ascends to his glorious throne and sends the Spirit, Peter preaches full of the Spirit to who? The very ones who we're seeing this morning calling out for him to be crucified. Isn't that stunning? Even the ones who nail him to the cross can be forgiven. And 3,000 of them do. How? Because his blood is sufficient to forgive all your sins, all your iniquities, all your trespasses. So don't linger this morning. Friends, see his love. Come to him. Repent of all that you've done and put your trust in him. There's nothing we love more here at Southside than to talk about how you can repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. You can talk to any member here after service. There will be some elders down here if you want to speak to them. Church, isn't Jesus amazing? There's no one like him. So as we bring this home, I want to zoom out and think about what Jesus as the righteous sufferer means for you as you follow him. Because you've come to him, what does it mean now that you are following him? He suffered for sins and fulfillment of the scriptures and for our salvation. Yes, you're a Christian, you get that. But he also suffered for righteousness sake. And he set an example and a pattern for all of us who would claim his name and follow after him. As Christians, we should not expect anything different than what Jesus endured. The New Testament is clear, we shouldn't. We are God's people, therefore we are going to be rejected by the world. To different degrees, yes, of course, but we will all suffer for his name. Because we are made for a different world. One made new and one where we will find comfort in suffering in this world because we have the most dignified example in Christ, the righteous, reviled sufferer. Two texts that teach us to expect suffering for righteousness' sake. 
Turn back to Matthew 5. Let's remind ourselves how Jesus ended the Beatitudes. Verse 10. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is teaching this to his disciples. then don't you love that Jesus wasn't a hypocrite? Jesus walked what he talked. He lived what he preached. He's not like the sinful mom or dad who say, do as I say, son, but not as I do. No, this morning we've seen that Jesus wasn't above what he taught his disciples, but rather he exemplified it with his life, even in his suffering all the way unto death. And to be clear, he taught his disciples to consider suffering for his sake to be blessing. We've seen that Israel always opposed God's righteous servants. With it coming to its head, its climax in their killing of the Son of God. But just because the persecution reaches its climax doesn't mean it ends. No, Jesus explicitly taught us to the contrary. He told the disciples elsewhere, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they persecute him all the way to a cross, how much more shall we expect suffering? So friend, if you don't know, now you know. Suffering is coming because you follow Christ. So are you ready? Isn't it becoming clearer and clearer in our culture today? People utter all kinds of evil. I love that. All kinds of evil. Little types of evil and massive types of evil. It's coming for all of us. So the question this morning is, is Christ so precious to you that if you lose everything to your name because of him on this side of eternity, that you would rejoice and be glad because you know that eternity with Christ will come with far greater rewards than anything you can get your hands on in this life. My hope is that as you continue to follow Jesus, as you know more of his love, as you continue to be amazed at the salvation that he has purchased for you, that when suffering and dishonor comes, you would rejoice that you might be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name, for the name of Jesus. And if you're not ready, or if you need to be more ready, which I think is all of us, the Apostle Peter gives us the way we can be ready. Turn to 1 Peter 4 and we'll close there. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're 
seeking to answer the question, how can we be prepared to suffer for Christ's sake? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, church, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Skip down to verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing Good. So how can you get ready? Recognize that the Spirit of God draws near to you in times of explicitly Christian suffering. Believe that you see more of the glory of Christ as you experience just a bit of what he suffered for you. And finally, entrust your souls to your faithful creator while you keep doing good. If you lose your job, your steady income, your reputation, your good name, because you won't reject Christ or his teachings, Peter tells us to go vertical. Entrust yourself to God. Only, know, only when you know you're firmly in the hands of your faithful creator will you have the strength and confidence and assurance to do the good that is required of you. He is faithful because that's who he is. And if you need evidence, if you need further convincing, if you need a word from God this morning, won't you look to Jesus? Won't you remember Jesus Christ suffering on your behalf? Won't you remember that he loved you, that he gave himself for you, Remember that even if they take your livelihood, your house, your family, your body, your very life, they can't touch your soul. Jesus Christ has you. He has purchased and redeemed you. God is faithful. He was faithful to his son as he resurrected him, resurrected him from the grave. And the son was faithful unto death, even death on a cross. So when the suffering comes... When they mock you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on account of Jesus, entrust your soul to him while you keep doing good. Remember your Savior. Remember that you're being conformed to his image, who loved you unto death, who endured scourging and mocking and crucifixion for you. He died for your sins. And yet he rose with freedom in hand. He calls you a brother. He calls you a sister. And he's not ashamed to do it. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. So follow him. Be like him. And he will bring you home.